So to start off this morning, let me name a Christian, Chris, Christmas, Christmas person, and then you tell me the book or the movie they're from. I don't think these are too difficult. First one, Ebenezer Scrooge. Any? Carol. Christmas Carol. There we go, right? He's sort of the, the um, grouchy old guy. And then he comes to understand the true meaning of Christmas. Not really the true meaning of Christmas, but he does come to understand there. All right, second one, Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter. Anyone know that one? Okay, you guys, yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful life. Jimmy Stewart, right? I don't think there's any transformation in Mr. Potter through that movie. He's just mean all the way from beginning to end, whatever time zone uh, Jimmy Stewart's in there. Okay, last one. This is a little bit harder, maybe for the younger ones here. Fulton Greenway, Fulton Greenway, or Mr. Greenway or Greenway Press from the classic, this is what we watch at our home every Christmas Eve, I knew this one, from the classic Elf with uh, Will Ferrell. Remember, he's the villain there, Mr. Greenway, who has that tough meeting there on Christmas Eve. That's how we spend our Christmas Eve, watching Elf, so I, I know it well. Uh, here's what those all three have in common. Here's what they all three have in common is sort of mean, uh, rich people who sort of are the villains of the Christmas story. That's what all three of them have in common. And in some ways, the point of all three is, if you're rich, don't be like this person at Christmas. That's the point of that. And we sort of love that example. You know, we sort of like to look in on rich people and say, this is what they're doing wrong and don't be like them. You can probably look on the news over the last month and think of other rich people whose lives are highlighted. And the basic point of the news story is, don't be like them. And as we come to the book of Luke, and as we're working through the book of Luke, Luke does something similar. He's highlighting some rich people throughout his gospel, and he's saying, don't be like them. If you have wealth, here's not how to live. And we've been going through the book of Luke. Let me just remind you of several points in Luke 6 where he does the, where Jesus does the Sermon on the Plain. Luke says these words, blessed are the poor and cursed are the rich. Now he's talking more than just money, but he's certainly talking some about that, blessed and cursed. Then in Luke 12, we get a parable and you sort of know, you don't have to know too much more about this parable other than the title. It's called the rich fool. And so you know how that goes, right? He's a man building uh, his wealth, but not building a life. And then in Luke 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's this great reversal where the rich man in life prioritized the wrong things and Lazarus the right and the great reversal in the afterlife. And then we come to another story today. And it's simply, we've got the rich fool, the rich man and Lazarus. This one is often known as the rich young ruler. And the point of all the stories is this, here's how not to be rich. Here's how not to be rich. And so that is really Luke's heart in telling these stories. It's a good Christmas theme because we see it out there in movies and in books and in literature and those things. But here's my hope and prayer this morning as we would think about looking at this story of the rich young ruler. It, it's yes, it's not how to be rich, but here's the other part of it is here's how those who have wealth can be faithful. 
That's my hope and prayer for us today. Here, as, as in our wealth, how do we honor God? How do be, we be faithful with it? And here's what Luke knows. As he writes these stories, and really Luke is known as the gospel to the wealthy. He, he's writing, anticipating that people, Theopolis, who he wrote to, was a wealthy man, and he's writing to other people. Here's what Luke knows, I think, in the back of his mind, is that people can misunderstand what truly has value. We can just miss that value. Luke knew in his day people would choose the short term over the long term. And so he writes his gospel with so many different points. And this is sort of how we, this is where we come today. And at times, here's what we can mark, and Luke knew it and we know it today. We can just forget where real life is found. What really actually ultimately matters and so that's why Luke writes these words that we would learn what it means to be faithful. And after he sort of goes through this teaching and we watch this rich young ruler, then he gets to the end and he broadens the principle. He says, let's move from beyond money to all sorts of other areas and here's what it means to follow Jesus. And at the end, we're going to see Luke say, here's what you have to leave and here's what you receive if you do. And so that's sort of our outline today. We get to see the one story about how we'd be faithful with our wealth, but then it broadens from there. Jesus doesn't reduce it. He broadens it out to all areas of life. So I want to show you this story. It's Luke 18, and we'll start in verse 18. Please open your Bibles, turn them on, find Luke 18 as we just keep working through uh, the book of Luke. And let me introduce myself as you're finding it. My name is Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. And to our Harbor Online community, Merry Christmas to you and just all of our love from all of us here this morning to you in the Harbor Online community. So do you have it there, Luke 18? What we're going to do is just walk through the passage verse by verse. We've got some principles along the way, and then we end sort of with Jesus's overview of all that he's teaching. So Luke 18, verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let me just set the stage. We're introduced to this man. We learn from Luke. He's a ruler, uh, probably some sort of civic ruler, you know, mayor or, you know, regional counselor, something in that sense as we would think it today. We learn later on in the story he is a wealthy man. Mark adds some other details to this encounter. Mark tells us he's young, so not an older man, so his wealth is probably somewhat inherited from his father, from his family, but he's also come to be a civic leader, known as a ruler. And when Mark tells the story, he says this man ran towards Jesus. It's like he ran to Jesus. It's like Jesus is out there. Hey, Jesus, I got to get to you. So he's eager. And Mark also says, and we see a little of that reflected here. Mark also says that he kneels before Jesus. So here you have a rich, young, you know, leader. He's got some influence. He's eager. He's humble. And then he says to Jesus, good teacher. He's respectful. There's many things about this man as the story opens that we like about him. And he's asking a great question. Look at this question that he asked. What? That's not, he doesn't quite get it right, but it's a pretty good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Of all the things he's running to Jesus with, he's saying, Jesus, I've got to know about how you find eternal life. Jesus, how do I, how do I find the life that you offer? I have to know that. In the midst of everything else going on in his life, this is what matters most to him. I appreciate that. 
Wouldn't it be nice if I stood on the stage today and said, hey, we need some help around the church this week. We've just got too many people walking in the doors asking us, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Wouldn't that be a wonderful problem that I could announce? You know, or think of you at your workplace or in your family or wherever you are with people that are far from God. You were to call me this week and say, Jeff, got a little problem. I got too many people asking me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Even as you think of it in those terms, you see how rare this man is. He cares about the right things and he's asking the right question. Now he's got something slightly off. And this happens in his day, Jesus's day, and in our day. Do you see his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's what he's thinking. What do I have to work at? How do I earn it? Right? What do I have to do? How good do I have to be to get eternal life? We have the same issue today. People would say, oh, I'm good enough. You know, I, I'm done enough. And my good outweighs my bad. And so here's the first idea. And I'll just put up the principle now. But you'll see how it plays out just so we can understand what this man is thinking. And, and here's, here's, the, here's what Jesus wants to teach us about Christianity. Is Christianity is not something we do. Christianity is not something we do. And that's what this man's coming. What do I have to do to earn eternal life? Now, Jesus is going to, he knows that he has this misunderstanding. So look down to verse 19. He says this, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So Jesus knows he thinks Christianity is something you have to do. How's he going to show him that it's not the case? So he sort of comes in the back door, questions the questioner going to get to those underlying presuppositions. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Here's the implication of that. Who is good? Only good. Well, God is good. Compare yourself to other people. You might look good, but compare yourself to God. We know we're not good. Only God is good. And so then Jesus says, are you calling me God? Did you just call me God? And if you called me God, called me good, are you recognizing that you're not as good? And if you've just called me God, are you going to listen to what I say? And then he goes on from there to verse 20. Then he goes back to show him back to the law to see if his goodness matches up. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Jesus goes back to the Ten Commandments. He lists the Seventh Commandment, then the Sixth, then the Eighth, then the Ninth, back to the Fifth. And he conveniently leaves out the tenth one, thou shalt not covet. We'll get to that one in a moment. But he says, how are you doing? How, how, how good are you doing? And then he looks down to verse 21. And here's how the man responds. All these I have kept since I was a boy. So this man and Jesus after this in Mark, Jesus, Mark told us Jesus loved him. He's sincere here in this moment. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't murdered, right? He hasn't stolen. He hasn't given false testimony. He's honored his parents and his father and mother. Ultimately, you look in and you think this guy is now maybe a little bit evaluating himself too righteous. But in his heart, he's saying, you know, I really have done these things. I've kept these commands. I've done good. Now we know Jesus broadens these in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you, you know, for uh, lust or for anger, that's the same as adultery or murder. So by Jesus' standard, he hasn't kept them. But by the outward standard of the day, he's done fairly well. And you've got to like this guy, right? He's rich, he's a ruler, he's powerful. And now he says here, I've lived pretty morally. 
You know, I've acquired my wealth and my influence and my power, and I haven't stolen, I haven't lied to get it. He's living a pretty good life. In fact, if you're looking in, probably a lot of mothers, if this guy wasn't married, a lot of mothers would say to their daughters, you know, you should meet this guy, right? He's rich, he's influential, he's moral, he's living a good life. He's a good candidate. Just, you know, talk to this guy. You know, he's got quite a lot going for him. So then Jesus now, after he said the first five, then here's where Jesus comes in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This is fascinating, isn't it? Jesus does not make it easy for this man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We would be tempted to say, just say this prayer and everything will be good. But Jesus challenges him. And here's what Jesus knows. He was keeping those five commands in his mind, but the very first command, thou shall have no other gods before me. Jesus knows he hasn't kept that one. He knows that money is his God. And he knows he's just trying to add on Jesus to his life. And so he challenges them with really what was his God. Here's the second principle. Christianity is not something you add. Christianity is not something you do because we can never be good enough. And Christianity is not something we add on. This man's just trying to add something on. And Jesus says, no, I need to be first place in all things. Just think about this vision of what Jesus is calling his followers to be. He is worth everything. He is worth all of our finances, all of our lives. He is worth all. And sometimes we can read this teaching of Jesus and we can, you know, minimize it a little bit. Well, that's what Jesus said to him. Now, it's certainly not universal for all people. I'll talk about that in a moment, but we can minimize this as well. But Jesus really is calling this man to something significant. I'll put this principle on the sideboard just so we understand what Jesus is saying here about finances. Jesus calls us to give sacrificially for the poor and the spread of the gospel. He maybe wouldn't call us all to give everything, but he certainly does call us to give sacrificially for the poor and the spread of the gospel. And then look down to verse 23. What's this man going to do? Jesus, what do I have to do to receive the life you offer? Jesus says, just sell everything. Give up your God and put me first. And then in verse 23, look how Luke writes it. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Luke does a nice contrast there. Very sad and very wealthy. And he goes away sad because he didn't want to surrender what was really most important to him. Now we look at this story and here's what we know. Jesus doesn't ask everyone to do this. We know that when Abraham followed God and God called him out, he didn't ask Abraham to give up all of his wealth. So then why does Jesus ask this man to give it all up? Here's the principle you'll see. Money didn't have this, or this man didn't have money, but money had him. You see that? That's why Jesus asked him to give it up. Money didn't, he didn't have money, but money had him. He thought he couldn't live without his money. And in truth, he couldn't live, he, he couldn't find life when he still had it. Look at this man. He misses out on the life that Jesus offers for some dollars. He misses out on all that Christ is offering him just for his money. 
And then Jesus, after he sees this, he looks at this man and he looks to the crowd and to the disciples and he gives this wonderful principle here. He gives the principle, then he gives an analogy. Jesus looked at him and said this, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So verse 24, there is the overarching principle. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. When you have wealth, you just don't see your need. And then Jesus gives this analogy to tell us how impossible it is, how, how little chance of succeeding the rich actually have. And he says this, if you imagine a camel and you think of an, a needle, you know, it's so hard to thread a needle. And Jesus is saying it's easier for the camel to get through that eye of that needle than it is actually for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now, this is totally false, but some of you may have heard this analogy that it actually there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And when camels came to the gate, they had to, you know, get down on all fours and somehow sneak through this gate in order to get in. And that's what Jesus is referring to. If you've ever heard that, it's totally made up. It's totally false. It's not true at all. Every commentary I read sort of made fun of that. So if you've heard that, it's just totally wrong. And I wanted to mention that. In fact, just think about that for a moment. You're, a, you're bringing your camel to Jerusalem and you got this little small gate who's ever going to train a camel to get down on its knees when like 20 meters over that way there's a big wide gate you just say let's just go over here and go through the easy gates what is Jesus doing here he's just giving an analogy he's giving an idiom that everyone in his day would have understood he's just saying it has no chance of succeeding we, we have a similar idiom today this is the best one I could find. It, we, have, we say it this way. It doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of surviving. Right? That's an idiom. If Jesus had said that, we all would have understood exactly what he was saying. But he says in a day that they understood this informal idiom, camel, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. Then look down to verse 26. After people hear this principle in regards to this man, here's what they say. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? See what Jesus is saying? This rich young ruler who's moral, who's virtuous, who was eager, humble, and respectful, asking the right question by every outward standard is successful and the crowd, and Jesus is saying, this guy's not getting the life that I offer. And the crowd says, if this guy can't get it, then who can get it? Who then can be saved? They just can't believe that this man is somehow missing out on all that Jesus was offering. And so then Jesus replies, this is such a great reply, what is impossible with man, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He's saying with people, with people, with the rich left to themselves, it's impossible they would ever see their need for God that they would ever humble themselves, see themselves as sinners. The rich tend to think they're self-sufficient. And when Jesus looks in and he says, salvation is impossible on ourselves. We need God to intervene. God alone saves. Here's how Timothy Keller says it in a quote. You'll see it on the screen. Money's power to blind us spiritually is so great that anyone with any kind of money will automatically be blind to the gospel. And therefore, nobody with any money will ever be saved unless God directly intervenes. 
That's what Jesus is teaching here. Money just has a way, and wealth has a way of blinding us to our own sin, to our own need. It makes us think we're self-sufficient, that we're good enough, and unless God intervenes, we never see his grace. We never see what he's done for us on the cross. Now, this is what Luke, in this little section, has been teaching all along. This is the fourth time now he's taught us the same thing in just a different way. If you remember back over this series, from the ordinary manger to ordinary people. You remember the first story, Jesus started with the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee was the one that had it all together, and he doesn't receive the life that Jesus offered. It was the tax collector who just comes with a simple prayer, Lord, have mercy on me. Then the next story is the child of the story of a child comes helpless, admitting their need, humble, admitting that they're not, they can't do anything on their own, just need to receive salvation. And then we come to this story. The unmistakable message is the same again. When we come thinking we've got it all together, we're good enough, we miss out on the gospel. We have to admit we're not good enough. And we have to just realize that we never, ever, will ever compare to God and his goodness. And we come saying, God, I need you. That's what this man misses. We come totally dependent on him. So maybe for some today or for some of you watching online, you sort of would have come in here to this time thinking, oh, it's good people and I'm good enough and I've done, you know, enough. And now maybe somewhere along the way in this story, you realize that it's not your goodness. You could never be good enough. And you just might even in your heart now want to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I come to you. I come and want to receive what you are offering, which is salvation, a free gift by your grace. And if you're in that category, wouldn't you come now just in your heart and just say, Jesus, I need you. I humble myself before you. Before we move from this verse, let me just give one other principle here. You'll see it come up on the screen, and hopefully this is an encouragement to many of us. Here's the principle. Take heart. No one's salvation is impossible for God. Take heart. No one's salvation is impossible for God. With man, yes, it's impossible. And you may have someone in your life right now where you think they will never, ever find Jesus. There's no way. And this verse is such a good reminder to us at the Christmas season that there is no one beyond the reach of God. There's no one whose, God, whose eyes God cannot open. So Jesus has declared this truth. And then Peter, now speaking on behalf of the disciples, gets a little bit nervous trying to figure out where he stands. And there's so much we could say about what Peter says. But look down to verse 28. Here's what Peter then blurts out. Peter, Peter says this, Jesus we have left all we had to follow you. And there's more I could say here, but at least Peter does give us a nice picture of what it means to be faithful to Jesus. And so what, what Luke is showing us is throughout his gospel, he, he paints the rich at times as proud, as ignoring the poor, as oppressing them. He paints the rich as thinking only of themselves. He pictures the rich of, rich of hoarding over sharing, of wealth over Jesus, of trusting in their money and not in God. But then he also gives us these pictures where Peter here says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. 
And that was true. Jesus called Peter and Andrew, his brothers, and said, come and follow me. And the Bible says they immediately left everything and followed Jesus. Think of Luke chapter 8, verse 3. It records that there was wealthy women who traveled with Jesus and his disciples, and they were a means of support for that traveling band. Think of Zacchaeus. That story comes next. But Zacchaeus is the camel who gets through the eye of the needle. If you're comparing these two characters, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is the one you would think would never find the life that Jesus offers, and this man you think already has it. But Jesus gives us a picture of Zacchaeus, who by most counts maybe gave up 90% of his wealth gladly to follow Jesus. There's the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Later on, after Jesus dies, who allows his tomb at great risk to his career and his position in society for Jesus to use his tomb. And then you get into the book of Acts, and Luke tells us about Barnabas, who sells a field to be faithful to meet the needs in the early church. And so Luke is doing two things. He's showing us how not to be rich, but he's also painting these wonderful pictures of how the rich, how the wealthy can be faithful today. And even as we see these pictures... They are just wonderful reminders for us as we would contemplate how we can be faithful in what God has given us. And now Jesus comes to the end of the story. The end of the story, and Peter's like, Jesus, we gave up everything for you. We've left everything. And how is Jesus going to summarize this? And you see, what I'm going to do is put on the side screen, Mark does a little better job of giving some details. It's the same verses, different chapter. But let me put up the verse. This is how Mark summarizes it. And first, Jesus says, here's what it means to be a follower of me. Here's what you have to leave. And look how Mark records it. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Let me just pause there. What is Jesus saying? We, as followers of him, may have to leave if we want to follow him and for the sake of the gospel. Really, Mark and Luke does it too, tells us three things. One is, you see it there? You may have to leave your home. And we know throughout history and in Jesus' time, people lost their homes. They were burnt, destroyed, confiscated. But we also know today that people leave their homes. Sometimes they have to leave their country. They have to leave for safety. They have to flee for their life. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, some of you may lose your homes. And then... He also says, some of you may lose, and he gives a series of relationships. Brother, sister, mother, father, children. Some of you may lose family. Some of you may lose key relationships. Some of you may lose the community that you are a part of for my sake and for the gospel's sake. And then Jesus keeps widening it. He says then, or farms. And again, this is an agricultural society. So the farm would have been their land, would have, when, would have been where they got their wealth from, their income, their financial security. So much was wrapped up in a farm or in land. And Jesus is saying, some of you, for my sake or for the gospel, may give you know, income or wealth or security or career for my sake. And so you see what Jesus has done. He was talking about money, but now he's broadening it out to all of these other things Here's the principle. What Jesus is teaching everyone who's listening to follow him is costly. It takes great self-denial. Now, at least you like this about Jesus. At least he's telling you the terms up front, isn't he? He's not hiding this. You know, hey, it's, you know, making it look something that it's not. He just is saying the terms up front to all 
who would want to follow after him? And here's the interesting thing. Jesus assumes that he is worth it. He assumes he is worth it. He's not making any apologies for any of these things. It's like he's saying, I'm better than all of these things combined. I'm worth it. Let me just make a couple of analogies today as we think about what this may mean today. For some people to trust in Christ may mean they actually have to leave their job, leave their career, give up their income. There are professions, and some of you are in professions where where you know or there are great challenges for what it means to operate like a follower of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we might think in our heads, oh, Jesus would never ask me to want to give up income or my job or my retirement package. No, not true. Jesus is calling people to do that in his day and in our day. Let me give a second example. Think with me for a moment about the LGBT community. Would Jesus ever call someone to give up a relationship? Would he ever call someone to deny their sexual fulfillment in following him? And what does it say here? Yes. Jesus says, to follow me, you may have to give up these things. Think of someone from a different religious background, a Muslim, a Buddhist, someone from a staunch atheist family, who for someone to follow Jesus, they may have to give up so much. They they could be persecuted. Their lives could be at risk. They could leave their country, their home, their culture, their friends. Would Jesus ask someone to do that? And the answer is yes. And sometimes today we, we say, you know, well, family is most important. Jesus is saying, nope, I am. And I'm greater than country, culture, land, income, job. Now, as you mark this, And as you think about those different people in different situations, in different communities I just mentioned, let me say this. To do this, to follow Jesus in this way, it feels like Jesus is killing us. It feels like he is taking life away from us. Jesus, if this is what it means, you're taking away something that is so deeply dear to me. And Jesus would say, yes. We started with the equation this morning. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's what Jesus is calling people in his day and in our day. To follow him, it means we leave something. But then look at the next verse. Look what Jesus does next. He not only says we leave But he says, we receive. Look down to Mark 10. Luke has got it as well. Here's what Jesus says. You'll see it on the screen. We will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with the persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus says, yes, to follow me could mean for some feels like you are giving up the very thing that gives you life. Could feels like you, I am, you are dying a death. But yet, please know, it's worth it. You will receive a hundred times anything you sacrifice. And then look what Jesus says. It's such an interesting verse. He says, you will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. He's saying now. He says future in a moment. But he says now you will receive a hundred times. Now, this sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? 
right? Hey, give up one house, get a hundred houses. That's a great deal, right? We'd all be in for that. Now, again, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. It sounds a little bit like it, but Jesus has just been saying, he's been devaluing wealth. He's saying, don't make it your God. He's not ending the story by saying, oh, surprise, make it your God. It's all good. Now, what, what he's saying here, how, how do we, how do these things, one, he's saying this, in the general principle of these things, is that when you leave something for me, here's the principle, no one can outgive God. No one will ever give, outgive God. And Christ himself makes up for every loss. So when you give something up for me, know that I will make it up. In fact, if you think of anyone you know or anyone famous through Christian history who sacrificed greatly for Christ and you were to put a microphone to them and say, was your sacrifice worth it? Here's what they would say. I never sacrificed anything. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. So in the general sense, Jesus is saying in the here and now a hundred times, it is worth it to follow me. But then what actually specifically does he mean? Well, here's what I think he means. He says, I have many disciples. When you come to follow me, I've got a whole new community of people. And when you sacrifice and come to follow me, I've got a new community of people who will take care of you. What does it mean when you receive a hundred homes? What Jesus is saying is you're going to enter into a new community of my disciples where you're going to find security and affirmation and welcome and understanding. And you may leave one home, but you're going to be welcomed in to so many more. When Jesus says what, what it means to receive a new family, new relationships, he's saying you're going to move into a new community where you will never be alone, where you will feel support and family and friends. And he says you're going to move into a new land, new farming. No one's going to go hungry. Every need will be met. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you decide to follow him, you enter into a new community and he provides all of these things. There's a fourth one he provides. Do you see it there? Homes, family, land, and the fourth one, none of us like. It doesn't fit, feels like a fit. you see it? And persecution. And some of you are in this stage right now. You're just weary. You're like, Jesus, yeah, you're keeping that promise. Life is hard. You've provided trials and trouble for me right now. Again, remember the principle. Jesus is saying it's worth it. He's saying he will make up for every loss. He will help you through every hard time. And then look at the last promise. And what does he say? It's not only now, but you receive the eternal life that you offer. A hundred times now. And then the eternal life that I offer, the ultimate life. So that's how Jesus ends. What do we leave? But then what do we receive? I recently heard Sam Alberry speak on this, and he adds a third category. It was a great bullet point, and I was preparing this message when he gave that message, and I was like, oh, that was wonderful. Thank you, Sam. What do we leave? What do we receive? Here's what Sam adds. What do we provide? And what's interesting about what Jesus says, it is a very unusual promise. He doesn't just say, and this is true, that knowing Jesus is better than anything, but he also says that we, the community, fulfill these promises. How does someone receive a new home or a new family or new land, new farm? It's because the new community of disciples provide that. I think this is a wonderful Christmas message for us. A wonderful reminder, even of what Ethan reminded us of what we've done in Share the Joy. 
And in Share the Joy, one thing that we, we like to do is not just give money, but actually you have to go and buy something with your hands. And some of you bought a gift for a church planter. You know, our different church planters locally and all around the world. You think, what did you do? You said, you know, here's a gift from your mother, your niece, your nephew, your spiritual grandmother. And we want to give this to you to be an encouragement. The part of the relationship that Jesus offered is here. Some of you provided, you know, food or different items. What's That's the land. No one's going hungry. You're part of a new community. And if you've left something, we want you to know from our hearts that you have received. This is what the, the church does. We fulfill this promise. How do people receive these things? Through our combined activity. So, and I love to hear at Harbor. I hear, someone told me this week that they almost every week hear a story of someone who's come to Harbor and someone else has invited them over to their home or out to dinner afterwards. Someone said that's happening just about every week around Harbor now. It's exactly what Jesus is saying, right? Come and you'll receive a home. When Sam Alberry taught this, I thought that was a really good application. Here's the question he asked. It was much more challenging. He said, who has a key to your home? Who has a key to your home? You don't need to start with that this morning. But he said, who who's not part of your family just has a key to your home, who anytime they need help, anytime they need community, anytime they're feeling alone can just show up at your house, and if you're not there, can just make themselves at home. That's what Jesus is talking about here. For some of you, you, you have the land part. You have a, a place and an opportunity to employ, to provide jobs or income. And for all of us, some of you here today, Someone needs to, you to be their spiritual grandfather, their spiritual grandmother, their spiritual father or mother, their spiritual brother or sister, niece or nephew. We all have a role to play in providing what Jesus says he is promising that we'll receive. And so it's a wonderful reminder for us here. This is what it means to be faithful as a church to be faithful in what God has given us. Let us provide that for each other, for one another, for our community. Let me join me in a word of prayer as we conclude. If you just close your eyes and uh, here's the first prayer. We'll just work through those three. What might Jesus be calling you today to leave to follow him? What might he be calling you to leave behind? And if you've never sort of turned and fully trusted in him, even wouldn't you do that now? Just leave and cling to him. Second question, what has Christ provided for you in the church and in the community of disciples? And might you just spend a moment saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've given me through the church, through your people. And then lastly, what might Jesus call you to provide for someone? Maybe there's a name. You know, maybe there's a home or a relationship or, or the land part that you just know today. You're just like, oh, Jesus, help me to provide that for them as they have left something to follow you. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. You're clear about what it means to follow you, to put you first in all things. But God, we thank you, Lord, that as we leave, we leave what thinks gives us life. We find the eternal life that you offer us. We celebrate that now. And oh God, we pray, Lord, 
that you would help us to continue to be the type of church that provides all that you have promised in these verses. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. One uh, last reminder, you'll see on the screen our Christmas Eve service. We're back here Saturday night. The stage will be full, wonderful music, a prayer time, just a wonderful time together. I hope you'll join us at 4 or 5.30 for that. Let me just invite you to stand. We close each service with uh, the, the saying of four words. And over the Christmas, we've been singing a song. And so, John, just come now and lead us in that song and then say those four words for us. sent.